Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will, be, he will by no means lose his reward. May God bless his word. You may be seated. So we have one more fun little thing to, uh, to talk about. You've heard us talking about our new pastoral residency program. We have had interns in our midst for as long as our church has been around. And the elders have, have been praying about what the next step in that stewardship. Oh, let me, sorry, release Grace Kids. If your child is, I see some of you already knew to go. If your child pre-K to second grade, you are released to Grace Kids. Please walk your uh, child back there, check them in. Um, so we could make sure you pick up the same kid you drop off. Um, but we've been talking about this pastoral residency program. It's something that would be more than a, a part-time intern. These would be real full-time pastors at this church, men uh, who would have the opportunity kind of to bridge the academy in the field. We would have them for three years. And, and we've been praying about this. And last year sometime, we, we found out we might, and in fact, ended up being eligible for a $360,000 grant for this aim. And so we have hired two new pastors at Orlando Grace Church. They are pastors. They won't be elders, but they, they are going to have all the responsibilities and privileges of a pastor at, at this church. And so I want to introduce to you via slide our two newest members of our, our church. Um, Erickson Joubert on the left. He was in the first service. He, is, he comes to us by way of Atlanta. He was on staff at Perimeter Church there. He has been studying at RTS and serving on staff at Orangewood. He is finishing up his MDiv and he and his wife, uh, Rachel, and two daughters. You may have seen them together. For some reason, the first service is the really big one that everybody's starting to go to. So thank you for being in this service. But they're in the first service. And, um, and then we have Jonathan Perdome. I've known Jonathan since he was a, a sophomore at Mississippi State University, where I served on, uh, as crew staff there and got to disciple Jonathan when we went back to Italy to help Juddy Valiquet plant his church. Um, Jonathan was in our team, so I have somebody I know very well. He stayed in Italy for some time, came back to finish his MDiv at Southern Seminary. Uh, he and his wife, and now, as of just a few weeks ago, two children, will be moving down here. And hopefully at our family night on February 21st, you'll be able to meet uh, at least Jonathan, maybe the whole family, and they will begin officially uh, their, their roles at Orlando Grace Church um, March 1st. So if you see him, I, I, I know as I was hired as an outsider. You made us feel very welcome, and I have every reason to believe you will welcome them in the same way. Now, if you would, let's bow our heads and pray. God, we come to you a, a good portion of our, of our membership grieving the loss of our brother Tom DeWitt to COVID-19. God, what a loss he is. He is somebody who exemplified what it means to live a life for you and what he did and what he said and how he, how he used his time and his life and his vocation communicated that his ultimate hope was you. 
And now, God, because of that, we do not mourn as those who have no hope, but we mourn the loss of him, but we celebrate the fact that he is forever healed in your presence today. We praise you for that and pray every blessing on those who uh, closest to him who miss him so much in this moment. We continue in that vein to lift up everyone who has COVID in our midst, everyone who hasn't, that you would keep us safe until Uh, until the vaccine comes, and we pray that it would come fast, especially for those who need it the most. God, we understand from this text that you, as we sing and as we will hear in this text, you feel what we feel. You understand us more than we understand ourselves. And so we, we thank you for that. We thank you for your presence. We pray for that encouragement that would overcome fear in our lives. And we pray this morning that you would continue to use Sunday morning for what you've designed it to be, that you would reorient our minds and our hearts for the missions that you've called us out into. And God, we pray that by your supernatural grace, through your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to understand, eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand. And most of all, God, we pray that you would do something that we can never do. Give us a will to obey. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are finishing up Matthew chapter 10 today. We have, we're in our series we're calling Gentle and Lonely most of the church. It seems like most of y'all, we can't keep books in stock enough, uh, are reading Gentle and Lonely. You know that in just a few weeks, we're actually going to get to the very pass, passage that this book, Gentle and Lowly, was written from. But as we finish chapter 10, we're finishing Jesus's discourse uh, as he sends out the twelve. And so he's been talking to his 12 disciples. He has talked to them about the, he's given them their charge. He's talked to them about the persecution that they're going to face as they're sent out. He's talked to them about the fear that they're going to experience as they're sent out. He's warned them of the divisions that are going to happen in the closest relationships that they have as they go out. But in this, in this passage, he kind of shifts a little bit as one commentator said, you, um, um, Economists would appreciate that. We move from, from the, the debit category to the credit category. He's, Jesus is moving from the challenges that, that the sent people are going to experience and he's moving into the benefits that, that we will experience. And really, I think you could sum this whole passage up by saying that Jesus is talking about just what an immensely significant thing it is to be called by him and sent out by him. I've experienced a lot of different types of evangelism in, in my, I guess, 17 years of ministry. And I think of one, uh, one profound evangelism fail that I got to be a part of in 2003 or 2004. Uh, I was on staff with crew over at the University of Pisa. And, uh, and I was partnered up with my friend David Robbins, who preached here a few weeks ago. And we had decided that we were going to go to this one faculty and we were going to look for uh, kind of the, the, an influential group of guys, a cool group of guys. And I guess we were thinking influencers. And I, I don't even remember how we identified who was the cool group, maybe the double deniming. I don't know, but they, that, that we identified this group. This was the group that we were going to go after. And we were walking towards them and we were just close enough to where they were like, they saw us coming. So it was kind of the point of no return. And right at that point, some Italian from the other side of campus started yelling, David, David. So just as we're getting to this group of Italians, David goes over here. <laughs> and so here I am all by myself approaching this really intimidating looking group of cool Italian students. 
And I just, there's a flip that switches and I've just decide I've just got to get through this. This is going to go terrible. I just assume it's going to go bad. I pull out my gospel track. I don't even know if I'm looking them in the eyes and I just start going through it and I get to the end. I ask them if they want Jesus. They say, no, I say, okay. And I leave and I, something just, just, it flipped in me. I decided in that moment that they were already going to say no. So I created a gospel presentation that fit that narrative. There was no hope or expectation in me. I wasn't emotionally engaging with them. I wasn't em- relationally engaging with them. And then not too long after that, Angela was telling me a story about her going, I guess we were really had a season. We we're really going after the gospel tracks, which isn't usually how we would do it. But you, uh, you walked up to a group of young ladies and as you were sharing the gospel with this tract, they start walking backwards like away from you. And you started just following them and they're walking backwards and you're walking towards them, just trying to get through this gospel tract. And so in both of us, there wasn't this deep awe of what we were there to do. It was just kind of duty bound. This is what we're supposed to do. Just get it over with. And there's a lot in this passage that I think if we had really in that moment known and understood and embraced it, we would have felt very different as sent ones in, in that specific scenario. Because for us, the grandeur of being sent by God was totally lost. The, ex, the expectancy that, that God can and will do radical life-changing things in people's hearts was, was really hard to see in us at that moment. And just the magnitude of what it was that we were bringing them, it just felt all but dried up. And I don't think that's what Jesus wants this to look like. I don't see that, I don't see that in the way that Jesus is sending out these people. So we see in this passage that Jesus wants us to have a deep understanding of who we are as his ambassadors. And I think he wants this then to really understand what it is that he is offering the world through us. So that's how the passage breaks down and that's how we're gonna, we're gonna walk through it. So first, who we are as Christ's ambassadors, we represent God. If you're, if you're a believer in this room, you are sent and you represent God directly. And this is where we pick up the first verse in our passage, verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So in ancient Near East culture, you had a king or somebody that was very important, a governor, and they would send people on their behalf and they would give them a ring or a a seal. And you would know when you receive this person, this isn't just an average Joe. He isn't even just a messenger. This is a representative of someone who is very important and we are going to treat him as such. So probably the closest equivalent that we have in our culture would be an an ambassador, maybe from, from one country to another. They would receive all the the rights and privileges of the one who was sending them. So Jesus says this, and then just to make sure he's really clear, he follows it up with two examples of what it is he's talking about. This is verse 41. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. So here we have these categories, a prophet and righteous man. And I don't think that Jesus is trying to create a New Testament category for for the office of prophet or this office of righteous man. Again, I think he's just looking back at the Old Testament, pointing to something that would have been very easily understood to prove his point. And he starts with prophet. The prophet is sent by God and should be received as one. All All Jewish people would have understood this. They were received as one speaking directly from God. And then you have this, this uh, admittedly a little more confusing category of righteous man. 
Uh, there's some debate about what it means, but I think it's clear he's pointing to Old Testament examples of of righteous men who stood on the right thing side of things, stood for truth. They may have defended Israel in, in some special, unique way. And I think this because three times in Matthew's gospel, he uses this term righteous, righteous men in relation to prophet. And two of the three, he's clearly talking about the generations before. So these men, they're being sent out and they should be received with the rights and the privileges of Jesus Christ himself. Whoever, whoever receives you, Jesus says, receives Jesus. But then Jesus takes it even further. He takes it well beyond anything that we know about in the ancient Near East practices. And he says that whoever receives you receives Jesus and then receives God the Father himself. So whoever receives these people who Jesus is sending out is actually in some way receiving God himself. That goes well beyond any ancient Near East practice of, of receiving somebody who represents somebody of more authority. Receiving the sent one here very much means actually receiving the sender himself. And I think this is a really difficult concept to understand in any culture. I think there are reasons that make it a little harder, even in our culture, to fully understand what's going on. What Jesus goes, what Jesus is saying goes well beyond representation of the father. Because it's one thing to represent somebody else. He's actually talking about identifying with God, the son and God, the father. He's saying at some level, whatever it is that happens to you actually happens to Jesus himself. So we have a number of categories for this in, in the New Testament. One, the one that I think would pop into most of our minds first is when Saul was on the road to Damascus about to be converted. He had been ravaging the New Testament church. He has been persecuting Christians, arresting Christians, executing Christians. Jesus pops up to him and asks him a question. And the question wasn't, why are you persecuting my people? What was the question? Why do you persecute me? That was Jesus's question of Paul because what Paul was doing to God's people, he was doing to God himself. That's why Jesus says in Acts 9, why Paul, why Saul, are you persecuting me? And so this is an old doctrine called Christus totus. It means the whole Christ, the whole Christ. And it, it, the doctrine itself would say that Christ is comprised. This is really, we're high level here, but it's simple. Christ is comprised of both the person of Jesus Christ himself and the body of Christ, which is the church. So we are in a way actually a part of who Jesus is. And this is what I think Paul is getting to in Ephesians 5. He says, Christ is the head of the church, his body, the church is his body and is himself its savior. So the context there is obviously marriage and he's saying in some mysterious way, however it is that, that a husband and wife are mysteriously made one flesh, so is Christ and his body, his bride, the church. Another place we can see it very clearly is Matthew 25. I'm gonna read verses 34 through 40. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. However you treat the least in the kingdom of God, you're doing that to Jesus. He feels it. He's a part of it. He cares about us so much. He's not only just, he's not only just looking over us as we go out and do what he's asked us to do. He actually takes us into himself in a way that whatever happens to us as we are sent happens to Jesus himself. So can you see how encouraging this would be to the disciples as they're being sent out? I mean, Jesus who said, lo, I will be with you always. He's not saying I'm gonna be looking out over you from afar and sending you good vibes and good thoughts. Jesus saying that he is so with you that when you enter the house of somebody and you're bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are representing and identifying with God himself. When you enter that house, so does God the son and so does God the father because God the spirit is inside of you. He feels what you feel. He gets you more than anybody is ever going to get you in your highs and in your lows. And when somebody accepts you, when you bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, they're not just accepting you. They're accepting God the Father and God the Son. And when they reject you, and when you bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody, they are not just rejecting you. They are rejecting God the Father and God the Son because the whole Christ includes the body, which is us. And you know, there have been people who have said, yeah, but Jim, this is the 12 disciples. This is a unique thing. This is, you can't just go and apply this to all of us. Well, we need to keep reading. Verse 42, Jesus says, and whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water. Why? Because he is a disciple. Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So giving somebody a cup of water in that day and age was like, it was the least courtesy that you could oblige them. I mean, it was very easy to do. It didn't take much effort. It would have been like the first century version of say, somebody in the 1950s lighting somebody's cigarette <laughs> or the 2000 version of, of loaning somebody your phone charger. It's easy. It costs you nothing. It is the most basic kind of courtesy. And Jesus is saying, whenever somebody gives even the most basic kind of courtesy to one of my disciples, which isn't just the 12, it's everyone, you're serving Jesus himself. You're blessing Jesus himself. So Jesus is sending his people and he's not just sending and saying, go see, I hope it goes well. He isn't even just sending us to do something that he himself has already done. He's sending us to do something that he is continually doing with us as long as this, as long as Jesus will tarry and we're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in this fallen world. So I read this, I think back to that little, the stories I gave you and I felt so alone. I'd lost my wingman. <laughs> I felt like it was only me. 
And I look at this and how, how mistaken was I? I was, I was not alone in any kind of way. I was representing God the Father and God the Son in that moment because I had God the Holy Spirit inside of me. And that should have given me more expectancy and magnitude in all than I was experiencing in any kind of possible way there. When PC preached here, PC, Pastor Kurt, he, he was my predecessor. He came back this year and, and we had the honor of listening to him preach once. And he told a story about a pastor friend who had told him that, that this year, 2020, had, had brought unique challenges and unique blessings. And he said, this pastor said this year, he's gotten some of the harshest and meanest communications he's ever gotten in his ministry career. And this pastor also said that this year he has received the most loving and encouraging uh, uh, communications that he has ever received in his ministry career. And he's nice not to name me, but that was me. (laughs) And, you know, so I, I, I think about this text and I think about the highs and the lows of the past year. And I think about Jesus being there with me and really feeling it. Like really feeling, yeah, I, I, we're all doing our best this year to try and, and bring the gospel to bear in a very hard year. And in the highs and in the lows, Jesus gets you. When ministry is going well and when it's not, Jesus gets you because he is actu- you are a part of him and he is feeling what you feel. This should be incredibly encouraging when we think about what it is that he's called us to do. So this story is not about us. This is a story about Jesus and we just get to be brought into Jesus in some very mysterious way. And when we understand who it is and in what way we're representing him, now we can get to the second part of the passage and see what it is that God is offering the world through us. This is the second part. In this passage, we see that he is offering the world through us truth and an eternal reward. So let's go back to verse 41, where Jesus is giving the example of the prophet. Why was it that they received a prophet in Old Testament times? Was it because the prophet was particularly eloquent? Was it because when he walked into a room, he just demanded the attention of the whole room and that made him good to speak to people? Was it because he was more studied or more spiritual or moral? No, a prophet was a prophet because God chose the prophet. And people received the prophet because God had chosen the prophet. I mean, this is exactly what he's saying. Look, the one who receives a prophet, why? Because he is a prophet. No other reason. God chose him to be a prophet. That's why you listen to him. Will receive a prophet's reward. So that's what made an Old Testament prophet a prophet. He received a word from the Lord for the people. He didn't merit this honor and this privilege, but he had this piece of truth that people needed to hear this piece of truth. And so they honored God's choice, his sovereign choice to choose this prophet and to send him to this people. And they received him as such. This would have resonated, I think, with the Old Testament people. These people possessed something that was inherently valuable. They weren't spiritual elite. They weren't morally elite. They were just chosen because they were chosen and God has the right to choose who he wants to choose. And fast forward to us, we are chosen because we're chosen. None of us merit this. And we have, because we have the full counsel of God, we have more truth than any single Old Testament prophet ever to live. So how much more valuable is our sending and the truth that we bring to the world? But we don't just offer a truth about something that happened a long, long time ago in a far off distant place of the earth. 
We offer a truth that comes with an eternal reward, an a reward that starts the moment you receive that blessing. And that brings us from the prophet to the righteous man. So I think there are actually two things going on when we talk about this righteous man. First, I do think in the main context, he's talking about a generation before, maybe some, some leaders in the Maccabean revolt, which is uh, an Israelite insurrection against Roman occupiers. We don't know for sure, but I think that's the main context. But I really think something else is going on here because in chapter five, Matthew has already introduced the idea of righteousness through faith alone. Faith in Jesus making you fully righteous. So I think this is really in the, in, in the back of the mind of both Jesus and, and Matthew, knowing that those who are sent have already been made righteous through their faith. And those who accept those righteous men as the messengers of God the Father, God the Son, because the Holy Spirit's within them, they will receive the same kind of righteousness. But it's funny to talk about righteousness. Like I, I, somebody says, you know, Larry's a righteous dude. Like, I don't know what that means that he's cool. I don't know. Does it mean that he's self-righteous? Like, what does it, does it mean he just goes to church a lot? I mean, we have lots of weird connotations about righteousness in our society. Some kind of like the word trunk. What does it mean? Trunk of a car, trunk of an elephant, trunk you put clothes in, tr I don't know, trunk of a tree. But we have to really define what biblical righteousness is. Righteousness means holy. And I want to say that I, I appreciate our Roman Catholic friends in the way that they've protected doctrines like Christus totus, the whole Christ, but I would want to really critique their understanding of righteousness, at least from a biblical perspective, because in Roman Catholic society, they would look at righteousness as something that begins either with your baptism and birth, or maybe if later on in life with faith. And in, in that faith or that baptism, you're given a little shot of the Holy Spirit and, the, and, that, and, and a little shot of righteousness. And you need to then cultivate that. You need to, through your own merit and your own work, grow that righteousness so that you can earn entrance into heaven at the end of your life. And if you don't do those things, or if you do bad things, your righteous, you know, your righteous account depletes and you can lose it all if you're not careful. And the problem with that is that that's not at all what the Bible says. Paul is super clear. Your righteousness comes by faith alone. That's it. When he's talking about Abraham's faith, this isn't some New Testament idea. He goes all the way back to Abraham and he says, this is why his faith is counted to him as righteousness. And so some of your versions say credited righteousness. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's unhelpful, but a lot of pastors would say, you know, it's, how does a credit card work? You're given money you don't have. The reason I don't like that analogy is because you got to pay it back at the end of the day. I, I think this credited righteousness is like having this debit card that is continually filled with righteousness. It doesn't matter what you do. You can never deplete it because it's Christ's perfect righteousness. The rapper Shy Lin says, Old Testament sa saints were saved on credit, but we are now saved on debit. Christ's righteousness has been put in our bank account. This is no loan. And if you think about it, there's no comfort in a righteousness that we have to earn because we know we could never earn enough righteousness to be able to merit God's love and perfect blessing. There's no way we could get there. And I think the Roman Catholic tradition understands this. This is why they've created things like all, you know, if you go, if you're with somebody at the moment of their death, they have rites that they perform to try to, to try to get your holiness up so that you can enter into the presence of God. They have rites that maybe if you can't get in the presence of God, they can at least get you into purgatory. And then through, through some period of time of suffering, you could then merit being in the presence of God. But if I have the privilege 
of being with any of you the moment your soul is taken from your body. That is not what you are going to hear me saying. When we, this will be the third Italy reference today. I'm sorry for that. But when we lived in Italy, our, our last time, when we were working with Jetty Valiquet, who was sent out by this church to plant um, Chiesa Nuova, Chiesa Nuova Vita, um, we, we had three little kids at the time, all in diapers, totally overwhelmed in life. And there was this sweet older lady named Amelia. She was in her 70s. She was next door to us. She was actually our landlord. And she could see that we were just completely overwhelmed in life. And most days of the year, she would come to us and she would ring the doorbell and just ask how many of you are eating. And she would show up hours later with this unbelievable meal for however many were in our home eating that day. So I quickly learned I'm, I'm, I'm eating at home <laughs> every lunch that I can. And then as, as you know, Angela's Italian is really good. So she became friends with Amelia and would go and learn how to, to cook all these incredible Italian meals. They became friends. We would spend holidays with them. They, uh, we would talk about God and, and she was a devout, uh, a devout Roman Catholic. And I feel with everything I have in me, I would say she had a real saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it was a blessing to know her. And so we, we left Italy. And two years later, I was leading a small mission trip. I'm pretty sure Robert Jackson was on that trip with me. And we were just about to fly out from New Jersey over to Salerno. And, uh, and I got a text from Amelia's daughter and she said, mom's dying. And I mean, just in God's providence, I'm, I'm, I'm literally going there right now. This is crazy. And so I, I got into Salerno on Saturday night, Sunday morning, went to the hospital, which was a huge blessing because on Sundays, they only let clergy and family into the hospital. And I really was not sure which one I was at that moment. And we went into the room and there's family and there's priests and they're praying and the priests are praying for her righteousness. And it was my turn to pray and I got to pray and I did not pray for her righteousness. I declared her righteousness because of her faith in Jesus Christ. And two days later, I got to preach her funeral in the main cathedral of Salerno in their native language and proclaim to everybody because of her faith in Jesus Christ, she is righteous and enjoying the father for eternity. I, I, mean, I just couldn't even believe I'm in there for three days and all that perfectly happens. If I get the privilege to spend the last hours of any of your life with you, you're going to hear the most important words you could ever hear from a human being. Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. I think this is very clearly in Matthew's mind here. We have been made fully righteous because we have received Jesus. Now we go out to other people as righteous people, made righteous because of Jesus offering that righteousness. And if they accept us, they accept the righteousness of Jesus Christ through God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And there's no way that we could ever earn this. There's nothing we can do to add to this righteousness or detract from this righteousness. It's just given to us because God loves us and he loves us because he loves us. We don't know why. He just loves us. And then we get to be the little ones who go out. And as we go out, whatever happens to us, no matter how good and no matter how hard, happens to Jesus himself. He identifies with us that much. Whoever receives a prophet gets a prophet's reward. Whoever receives a righteous man receives a righteous man's reward. And the reward is Jesus. 
Jesus is the reward. God is the reward. We call this imputed righteousness. It's nothing that we could earn on our, in and of ourselves. And this is how the main barrier between us and God gets fixed. Sin is this main barrier. God, Jesus overcomes that by making us righteous. And the reward isn't our own righteousness. The reward is that gives us access to God. Jesus is the reward. And people make a lot about make a lot out about heavenly rewards. And I think there probably is something, you know, there probably is something to privileges we'll have in the next life uh, because of things that we have, we have stewarded in this life. But this is how I think about it compared to the main reward. It's, 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 those things are gonna pale in comparison to the main reward, Jesus. I did something two weeks ago that I haven't done in a long time. I bought a lottery ticket. It was almost a billion dollars, okay? It cost $1, I bought a lottery ticket. And, and I, I really, was, I was telling God why I am the best person to win this. I mean, I would, I would give so much away. He felt like there was somebody better out there to win it. And, but I started thinking about what if I won that, what, $900 million? And I imagined myself like holding this big cardboard. I thought about it way more than I should have, but I'm holding this big cardboard check, you know, that's functionally worthless. It's kind of exciting, but it's, it's, not, it's nothing compared to the real prize. Any heavenly reward that we get is just going to feel like that cardboard check compared to the main reward of knowing and dwelling without the presence of sin with God forever. And because in that, in that, in that time, our righteousness when, at the fullest time, when Jesus comes back or we go to be with him, our righteousness becomes real. It isn't just some legal declaration that was that this, debit account, this debit account that was put in our righteousness account, it actually becomes who we are. We step in front of God, fully conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And we walk in front of God, not as simply legally declared righteous, but legally declared and then fully conformed into that legal declaration. And that's why we walk in front of the presence of God. And he looks at us and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is how Jesus is redeeming the world. And so I want to finish by getting really practical. I just, I, I want to think about, because we're finishing this whole sending section. What does it look like to be sent the way that these, that these apostles and disciples were sent? And I want to do that. I'm gonna, in a minute, I'm going to go to Acts 17, because the sent one that we have the most information about is Paul, the apostle Paul. And I want to look in Acts 17 about what this sentness looks like. But before I get there, I want to introduce you to some terms that you're going to be hearing more of. We've been using more and more in our church. And I want to do it like this. Typically, when you look at different churches, you see churches that would be more confessional or you see churches that would be more missional. And so on one end of the continuation, you have these confessional churches that, that they say that because they confess the Bible. They usually have some sort of document, a creed or a confession that in some sort of concise form says, this is, this is what we believe. And confessional churches tend to be uh, biblically faithful, but usually not really fruitful. That, unfortunately, that, that's what you see. You see people becoming Christians in other areas and they mature in their faith and they tend to find themselves in a confessional church eventually if they didn't, you know, of course, grow up in that church. And churches like this, we can, if, if this is what we are, we, we can be tempted to think, 
that we just don't need to be concerned with what's going on in the world. Churches like this can be inwardly focused. Churches like this can think that we don't need to bother ourselves with issues like abortion and oppression and poverty. And in, in the farthest extreme of these confessional churches, what we see is a gap between the culture and the church, a cultural gap that is far too wide. And then on the other side, we have missional churches. And they do tend to appear to be more fruitful, but they also can tend to stray doctrinally. In an effort to engage the culture, they can inadvertently allow the culture to lead them. They can be consumed by issues of the day, driven by issues of the day, because they, they, they keep thinking, if we don't look more and more like the culture, then we're not going to be seen as relevant. People aren't going to come here anymore. And so in this, in this missional side, the, the gap between the culture and the church, it isn't wide enough. It's too small. And so at Orlando Grace Church, we're beginning to have, have these phrases that we say, like we want to be confessional and missional. This is hard to do. We want to be able to engage the culture and understand the culture and provide good, right, and true biblical answers for the questions that they're asking. To be able to go into the world, not become of the world, and be faithful to the doctrine that God has given us through his word. This is hard. We're not experts in it. I'm not an expert in it, but this is by God's grace, the kinds of things that we're starting to pray about as, hey, we is he would develop this church to be able to reach this context. And so we've been talking, how does this work? If we're gonna do that, be faithful yet engage the culture. We've been talking about the three C's. Comprehend, commend, and critique. So when we engage with any cultural issue, we wanna comprehend it first, then we wanna commend it, and then we wanna critique it. And so I'm just gonna finish here by looking at Acts 17 and just to see Paul doing this. He's in Athens, at the Areopagus, Are Are I always butcher that. Are yes, that. Displaying the Greek gods in Athens. And so he's looking at these things and he's comprehended Areopagus. Thank you. There it is. So he's looking at all these gods and he's, he's comprehending. He doesn't come in and just start bashing everybody. He actually says, men of Athens, I perceive some things about you. And he perceived some things about their altars that he knew. He articulated them. He specifically identified this altar of the unknown God. And so he's communicating, I'm understanding your culture. And then the next thing he does in Acts 17 is commend their worldview. I mean, just think about that for a minute. This is, this is a pagan Greek culture and he's commending them. He says, I see that in every way you are very religious. I don't care what your worldview or decision you're making Almost, there's almost always something to commend in that. And we, I mean, we can look at some extreme decisions. If there's a, a woman across the street going to terminate her, her pregnancy, we interact with her and realize, well, she's scared that she won't flourish in life if she has this baby. Okay, well, we can, we can commend the desire to flourish in life. I and mean, we're not to the critiquing spot yet, but we could, we could say that we know a God who wants both of you to flourish. So we're not getting to critique yet, but there's something to commend. We can... So for some reason, I'm, I'm asked a lot, these, more than I have been these days, Jim, do you believe critical race theory? And the answer is no, but that doesn't mean there's not something to commend there because critical race theory believes that the, the systems of our world are insufficient for human flourishing. Every Christian would acknowledge that. We would all affirm that. We have a different solution, but we, there's something to, com to commend. We can't really engage the culture in any of these things that we disagree with until we comprehend it and then we commend it. And then finally, we get to the critique. Paul's critique is that their, 
They're false gods are made by their hands. How can, how can a God who's made by you be a real God? But this unknown God, I think you're onto something here. The one who made the world and everything in it, this God, Paul says, is not far from you as you might think. Now, why would Paul say this God is not far from you? This is where we come full circle because Paul's there. Paul is there. Paul is there identifying with Jesus and God. They reject Paul. They are rejecting God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They accept Paul. They are accepting God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so our desire as a church is that, that we would grow in this, that we would get better, that we would be missional and confessional and talk about this together, that we would be able to look at all these things that we don't agree with, but comprehend, commend, and critique and tell the better story of Jesus Christ to a culture that needs it so dearly. I think if we do this, our future is really bright. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you... You don't just guilt us into doing something like I've, I've done, just walking and feeling the sense of duty, this lack of expectancy, but you call us into a mission that you, you are actually in some way doing yourself. You feel what we feel. You're in it with us. And I pray that this would just sink into us, that we would know this, that we would feel, we wouldn't feel alone when things go hard and we wouldn't, we wouldn't feel alone when things go well because they, we, would be, we would lend ourselves to despair when it's not going well and we would lend ourselves to pride when it is. But in every circumstance, it's you who are working through us and I pray that that would be true of us, that we would know clearly who it is that sends us, who we represent and what it is you are offering to the world through us. We thank you, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.